Hello there, and welcome to The Road to Nicaea, Christ, Creed, and Controversy in the Turbulent Fourth Century, part of the Earth and Altar Podcast Network. Supplemental. Alms for the Poor. Basil the Great on Social Justice. One of Basil's primary responsibilities in his role as Christian bishop was to be the senior cleric in the Diocese of Caesarea. Among Basil's responsibilities was regular preaching. Many of his sermons have survived to the present day and are a considerable resource for scholars seeking to round out the picture we have of Basil of Caesarea. And today, we're going to take a look at some of that sermonic content. We're actually going to do something just a little bit different. Normally, when we go through these texts, I do a lot of summarizing. And that is as it should be. This is a podcast, after all. You're here to listen to things so that you don't have to read about them on your own. But when we get down to something the length of a sermon, it's actually the sort of thing that I can just read straight through in the time length of a podcast. Now, Basil's sermon is about a half an hour long, so those of you who come from Anglican or Catholic traditions are going to think he preached for a super long time. Those of you from non-denominational or charismatic backgrounds may be admiring his brevity right at this moment. I'm going to just read this straight through to give you a chance to hear Basil in his own words. Well, okay, not in his own words, because I'm not going to babble on in Greek to you for half an hour, but at least to hear in his own words as they are translated and have come down to us. The sermon that I've selected for this is one of his most famous. It's called To the Rich, and you can find it in a nice little volume from the popular patristic series in a volume called On Social Justice. I highly encourage you to give St. Vladimir's Seminary Press some of your hard-earned cash and make this book part of your library. It's a wonderful addition. We're not entirely sure when this sermon was preached, but it appears to have been preached sometime in the year following a massive famine that affected a good portion of Basil's diocese, during which time Basil did not feel the rich of his city were giving their fair share to helping everyone through the crisis. So the way this will work is I will first read the gospel passage Basil preached on, and then we will jump straight into the sermon with a little bit of commentary at the end. We'll begin with the text that Basil preached on, which is Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 to 22. They read as follows. Then someone came to Jesus and said, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, also you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, I have kept all these, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you wish to be perfect, go, sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard this word, he went away grieving, for he had many possessions. Here ends the lesson. We have spoken previously about this young man, and the attentive listener will surely recall the matters we examined at that time. First, we should remember that the youth of this passage is not the same as the lawyer mentioned in the Gospel of Luke. That lawyer was a tempter who crafted his questions disingenuously. 
but this young man inquired with a healthy disposition, though he did not readily receive the reply. Indeed, he would not have gone away grieving after hearing the Lord's answer if his questions had merely been a ruse. His behavior thus presents a kind of mixed message. In one way, the scripture shows the young man to be praiseworthy. In another, however, he is seen as pitiable and completely abject. He recognized the teacher of truth bypassing the imposture of the Pharisees, the speculation of the lawyers, and the convocation of the scribes, and ascribed a fitting appellation to the only true and good teacher. For this he is to be praised. Moreover, he desired to learn by what worthy deed he might inherit eternal life. This also is deserving of acceptance. Yet all his good intent is cast under judgment by this, that he does not focus on what is truly good, but rather looks to what pleases most people. Namely, after learning the lessons of salvation from the true teacher, he neither inscribes them in his heart nor puts them into practice, but rather goes away grieving, darkened by the passion of avarice. All this clearly demonstrates the discord of his motives and his own internal disagreement. Do you say teacher and not carry out the duties of a disciple? Do you call him good yet decline to accept what he offers? After all, it is evident that he who is good is also the giver of good. You ask about eternal life, yet show yourself completely bound to the enjoyment of this present life. What severe or burdensome or excessive word did the teacher give to you? Sell your possessions and give to the poor. If he had offered you the toil of the farmer, or the perils arising from commerce, or any of the difficulties afflicting those who do business, then perhaps you might have been sad at such a disagreeable command. But when he promises to make you an heir of eternal life by such a smooth road, without pain or exertion, you do not rejoice at the ease of salvation, but rather depart with lamentation and bitterness of soul, invalidating all that you accomplished by your previous labor. Although you say that you have never murdered or committed adultery or stolen or borne false witness against another, you make all this diligence of no account by not adding what follows, which is the only way you will be able to enter the kingdom of God. If a physician promised to cure some bodily defect arising either from birth or as a result of illness, you would not lose heart. But when the great physician of souls and bodies, seeing your deficiency in this vital area, wishes to make you whole, you do not accept the joyful news, but rather turn sad and gloomy. It is thus evident that you are far from fulfilling the commandment, and that you bear false witness within your own soul that you have loved your neighbor as yourself. Look, the Lord's offer shows you just how distant you are from true love. For if what you say is true, that you have kept from your youth the commandment of love, and have given to everyone the same as yourself, then how did you come by this abundance of wealth? Care for the needy requires the expenditure of wealth. When all share alike, dispersing their possessions among themselves, they each receive a small portion for their individual needs. Thus, those who love their neighbors as themselves possess nothing more than their neighbor. Yet surely you seem to have great possessions. How else can this be but that you have preferred your own enjoyment to the consolation of the many? For the more you abound in wealth, the more you lack in love. If you had truly loved your neighbor, it would have occurred to you long ago to divest yourself of this wealth. But now your possessions are more a part of you than the members of your own body, 
and your separation from them is as painful as the amputation of one of your limbs. Had you clothed the naked, had you given your bread to the hungry, had your door been opened to every stranger, had you been a parent to the orphan, had you made the suffering of every helpless person your own, what money would you have left the loss of which to grieve? Had you determined long ago to give to those in need, how would it be unbearable now to distribute whatever was left? At festival time, people do not regret parting with what they have at hand in order to gain whatever is necessary for the feast. Rather, the cheaper they are able to purchase valuable commodities, the more they rejoice at receiving such a bargain. But you lament at relinquishing gold and silver and property, that is, stones and dust, in order to obtain the blessed life. After all, what is the use of wealth? Do you wish to wrap yourself in fine apparel? Surely two lengths of cloth are sufficient for a coat and the covering of a single garment fulfills every need with regard to clothing. Or would you spend your wealth on food? A loaf of bread is enough to fill your stomach. Why then do you grieve? Of what have you been deprived? Of the glory that derives from wealth? Had you not sought glory from the dirt, you would have discovered the true glory like a shining beacon leading you to the kingdom of heaven. Nonetheless, having wealth is dear to you, though you gain from it no advantage whatsoever and the futility of chasing after what is worthless is obvious to everyone. Perhaps the lesson of the paradox I am about to speak will be apparent to you. It is in any case entirely true. When wealth is scattered in the manner in which our Lord directed, it naturally returns, but when it is gathered, it naturally disperses. If you try to keep it, you will not have it. If you scatter it, you will not lose it. They have distributed freely, they have given to the poor, their righteousness endures forever. Psalm 112, verse 9. Yet it is not on account of food or clothing that wealth is sought by most. Rather, some device has been concocted by the devil, suggesting innumerable spending opportunities to the wealthy, so that they pursue unnecessary and worthless things as if they were indispensable, and no amount is sufficient for the expenditures they contrive. They divide up their wealth, one part for the present needs and another for the future. They put aside one portion for themselves and another for their children. Then they distribute their own share among various spending opportunities. Only listen to the arrangements they make. There should be, they say, some wealth for spending and some held in reserve, while the allowance for daily provisions should exceed the level of mere necessities. Some will be for comforts within the house, and some for outward display, some to make traveling comfortable, and some to make life splendid and luxurious at home. I am overwhelmed even at the thought of so many contrived extravagances. There are thousands of carriages plated with bronze and silver. Some carry their owners, while others carry their goods. Multitudes of horses follow, whose lineage can be traced back to noble sires, as if they were human beings. Some bear their masters within the city when they go out for entertainment. Some are reserved for hunting, while others are specially groomed for traveling. They wear bridles and belts and garlands all of silver and spangled with gold. They are adorned with blankets of finest purple arrayed like a bridegroom. Teams of mules separated according to color are accompanied by their drivers in successive waves, some going before, others following after. A veritable army of servants is required. Butlers, housekeepers, gardeners, master artisans of all kinds, experts at both things needful, and those devised purely for pleasure and entertainment. 
cooks, bakers, wine tasters, hunters, sculptors, painters, specialists in every kind of indulgence. There are caravans of camels, some bearing burdens, others grazing. There are teams of horses, droves of cattle, flocks of sheep, herds of swine with their herdsmen. There are land holdings sufficient to pasture them all, while at the same time increasing the sum of wealth by the revenue they generate. The landowners enjoy baths in the city and in the countryside. Their homes are made with all kinds of translucent marble, some of Phrygian stone, some of Laconian or Thessalian tile, which keep them warm in the winter and pleasantly cool in the summer. The floors are decorated with mosaic, the ceilings richly gilt. The portions of the walls that are not tiled are decorated with painted designs. After they have squandered their wealth among so many pursuits, if there is any left over, they hide it in the ground and guard it deep within the earth. For the future, they say, is always uncertain. Therefore let us take care, lest some unforeseen need should arise. Yet while it is uncertain whether you will have need of this buried gold, the losses you incur from your inhuman behavior are not at all uncertain. When by a multitude of schemes you are unable to exhaust your wealth, you concealed it in the earth. An evident madness. So long as gold remained unearthed in the mines, you scoured the world to find it. But once it came to light, you hid it in the earth again. And I think that when it comes to this, as you are burying your wealth, you entomb it with your own heart. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Matthew chapter 6, verse 21. This is why the Lord's commands make some sorrowful because their lives become unbearable when they are not permitted to indulge in frivolous expenditures. It seems to me that the passion of the young man described in the gospel and of those like him may be likened to that of a traveler who hastens to arrive at a famous city, but then stops short and lodges in one of the inns just outside the city walls. By a small degree of laxity, he invalidates all his previous efforts and deprives himself of beholding the sights of the city. In the same way, there are those who gladly undertake other tasks, but resist laying aside their possessions. I know many who fast, pray, sigh, and demonstrate every manner of piety, so long as it costs them nothing, yet would not part with a penny to help those in distress. Of what profit to them is the remainder of their virtue? The kingdom of heaven does not receive such people, for it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Though the meaning of our Lord's answer is clear, and he does not lie when he speaks, there are few who are persuaded by it. How shall we live, someone will say, when we have renounced everything? What quality of life will there be if everyone sells all and forsakes all? Do not ask me the rationale behind our Lord's commands. The lawgiver knows well how to bring what is possible into agreement with the law. Your heart is tested, as it were, upon the fulcrum of the scale, inclining now towards the true life, now towards present enjoyment. It befits those who possess sound judgment to recognize that they have received their wealth as a stewardship, and not for their own enjoyment. Thus, when they are parted from it, they rejoice, as those who relinquish what is not really theirs, instead of becoming downcast like those who are stripped of their own. Why then are you sad? Why do you mourn in your soul hearing sell your possessions? Even if your belongings could follow you to the future life, they would not be particularly desirable there, since they would be overshadowed by truly precious things. 
If, on the other hand, they must remain here, why not sell them now and obtain the profit? You are not disappointed when you must spend gold in order to purchase a horse. But when you have the opportunity to exchange corruptible things for the kingdom of heaven, you shed tears, spurning the one who asks of you and refusing to give anything while contriving a million excuses for your own expenditures. What then will you answer the judge? You gorgeously array your walls, but do not clothe your fellow human being. You adorn horses, but turn away from the shameful plight of your brother or sister. You allow grain to rot in your barns, but do not feed those who are starving. You hide gold in the earth, but ignore the oppressed. And if your wife happens to be a money-loving person, then the disease is doubled in its effects. She stirs up the love of luxury and inflames the craving for pleasure, spurring on fruitless pursuits. Such women contrive to procure precious stones and metals of all kinds, pearls, emeralds, sapphires, and gold, working some into ornaments and weaving some into their garments, while aggravating the disease of avarice with every form of tasteless display. The diligence they bestow on these things is unrivaled. They occupy themselves with such concerns day and night. Multitudes of flatterers insinuate themselves into the household through their desires. They, in turn, bring in the dye merchants, the goldsmiths, the perfumers, the weavers, the embroiderers. They do not give anyone a second to breathe with their incessant demands. No amount of wealth, not though rivers should run with gold, can support the desires of a woman who buys imported perfume as though it were common olive oil from the marketplace, and chooses porphyry and sea silk, the flowers of the ocean, over ordinary wool from sheep. Gold settings clasp the costliest of gems, some they make into frontlets for their foreheads and some into necklaces. They weave some into belts, while still more encircles their hands and feet. Indeed, those who love gold do not mind being bound with manacles, so long as their chains are of gold. How can anyone care for the soul while catering to the whims of a greedy wife? For as storms and surges at sea scuttle ships with rotten holes, so the disposition of spouses drowns the weaker souls that live with them. When wealth is divided by a man and a woman between so many pursuits, and each vies to outdo the other in the invention of frivolous amusements, there is of course no opportunity to consider the needs of others. When you hear, sell what you have and give it to the poor, so as to make provision for eternal enjoyment, you go away sad. But when you hear, give what you have to a woman of luxury, that is, to stonecutters, woodworkers, mosaicists, painters, you rejoice as though gaining for yourself something money cannot buy. Do you not see the time-worn remnants of walls that dot the city like so many watchtowers? How many poor people were there in the city? who were ignored by the rich of that day on account of their efforts to construct these walls. Where now is the pristine condition of their works? Where now the one who zealously labored for their grandeur? Are they not raised and utterly demolished like sandcastles designed by children at play? Does not their builder rue in Hades the care taken for spurious things? Let your soul be great. Walls, whether great or small, serve the same purpose. When I go into the house of one of these tasteless, newly rich individuals and see it bedecked with every imaginable hue, I know that this person possesses nothing more valuable than what is on display. Such people decorate inanimate objects but fail to beautify the soul. Tell me, what better service do silver-encrusted tables and chairs or ivory-inlaid beds and couches provide than their simpler counterparts? 
Yet for their sake the rich do not respond to the poor, not though thousands should come to their door crying with piteous voices. Indeed, you refuse to give anything, insisting that it is impossible to satisfy the needs of those who beg of you. You profess this to be true with your tongue, but your hand gives you the lie. Silently your hand bears witness to the falsehood, flashing as it does with the jewels from your ring. How many could you have delivered from want with but a single ring from your finger? How many households fallen into destitution might you have raised? In just one of your closets, there are enough clothes to cover an entire town shivering with cold. You showed no mercy. It will not be shown to you. You open not your house. You will be expelled from the kingdom. You gave not your bread. You will not receive eternal life. But you claim that you yourself are a pauper, and I concur. Now, a pauper is someone who lacks many things, and the insatiability of your desire makes you lack many things indeed. You diligently strive to add ten more talents to the ten you received, and when you have twenty, you seek to add twenty more. Yet this constant accumulation does not quell the craving, but only further inflames your appetite. For just as a little wine becomes an opportunity for the drunkard to drink some more, so also the newly rich, after they have acquired much, desire even more. They nourish their malady by constant accumulation, and their pursuit of gain is turned against them to their hurt. They do not rejoice in what they have, no matter how much it is, so much as they lament what they still lack, or think they lack. Their soul is eaten away with cares as they compete in the struggle for success. They have every reason to be happy and rejoice in their prosperity, but instead they weep and wail because they fall one or two degrees short of some other super-wealthy individual. When they surpass one person's fortune, they immediately endeavor to outdo the next wealthier rival, and if they overtake that person, they turn their attention to the next. Like those who ascend a ladder, climbing from rung to rung without stopping until they reach the top. For such people do not pause in their race for supremacy until, at the moment they reach the summit, they plunge down headlong from their exalted position. For the benefit of humanity, the creator of all things made the starling to devour locusts insatiably. You, on the other hand, have made your own soul insatiable to the detriment of many. A greedy person desires whatever the eye can take in. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verse 8, and those who love money will never be satisfied with what they have. Hades never says enough, nor does the greedy person ever say enough. When will you use the things you already have? When will you ever be able to enjoy them since you suffer constantly from the pains of acquisition? Woe to those who join house to house and connect field to field so that they might rob their neighbor. Isaiah chapter 5 verse 8. And what do you do? Do you not contrive a plethora of excuses so as to take what belongs to your neighbor? Someone says, my neighbor's house blocks the sun, or they cause disturbances, or they keep bad company, or make some other allegation. Such a person never stops badgering and assailing and accusing and harassing until the neighbors are compelled to move elsewhere. What killed Naboth the Israelite? Was it not King Ahab's desire for his vineyard? Truly, the avaricious person is a bad neighbor in both the city and the country. 
The sea knows its boundaries. The night does not exceed the limit set from of old. But the avaricious person does not regard the passage of time, does not respect any limit, does not defer to the proper order of things, but rather imitates the violent nature of fire, spreading to all and devouring all. Great rivers begin from tiny streams, but eventually acquire irresistible magnitude by means of small additions so that they violently sweep away whatever lies in their path. Thus it is with those who advance to positions of great power. From those who previously held dominance, they receive the ability to treat many others unjustly. They oppress those who remain unscathed through those who are already victims of injustice. As wickedness overflows, it gives them an opportunity to expand their power. Those who have already been badly mistreated render them a kind of involuntary assistance by inflicting harm and injustice on others in turn. What neighbor, what confidant, what friend is not swept away? Nothing withstands the influence of wealth. Everything submits to its tyranny. Everything cowers at its dominion. Those who have already been exploited would rather avoid suffering some further injury than seek reparations for past injustices. Leading yokes of oxen, the wicked plow, sow and harvest what is not their own. If you dispute with them, they come to blows with you. If you complain, they accuse you of assaulting them. You will be arrested and put in prison. The false accusers are ever ready, willing to place your very life at risk then you will gladly pay something over and above what was already taken in order to settle the matter. It was my intention to give you a respite from the works of injustice and to grant some leisure to your thoughts, so that you might carefully consider to what end your pursuit of material things has led you. You have acres and acres of arable land, fields and orchards, mountains and dells, rivers and springs. But what comes after this? Is not all that awaits you a six-foot plot of earth? Does not a small quantity of rocks and soil suffice to cover this mortal flesh? Why, then, do you toil? Why do you transgress? Why do you gather a fruitless harvest with your own hands? Would that your labors were only fruitless and did not rather constitute fuel for the eternal fire? Will you ever rouse yourself from this stupor? Will you never regain consciousness? Will you never come to your senses? Will you not bring before your eyes the judgment seat of Christ? What will you say in your own defense when all around you stand those whom you have treated unjustly, denouncing you before the righteous judge? What then will you do? What advocates will you retain? What witnesses will you present? How will you sway the judge who cannot be deceived? No fine speakers are there to defend you. No persuasiveness of speech to hoodwink the judge. Neither flatterers, nor possessions, nor the burden of glory will follow you there. Without friends, without helpers, without supporters, without even a word in your own defense, you will be led forth in disgrace, with bowed head and downcast eyes, utterly forsaken and ashamed. Wherever you turn your gaze, you will clearly behold the apparitions of your evil acts. Here the tears of the orphan, there the groaning of the widow, Elsewhere, the poor whom you have trampled down, the servants whom you have brutalized, the neighbors whom you have treated outrageously. All your deeds will rise up before you. The wicked chorus of your wrongdoings will beset you on all sides. Just as the shadow follows the body, so also one's sins closely follow the soul and form a clear outline of one's actions. There is thus no possibility of denial there. 
every mouth will be stopped, and especially that of the arrogant. Each person's works will bear witness for themselves. Without a word being spoken, they will make our deeds plain. How can I summon before your eyes the fearful things that await you? If indeed you hear and relent of your ways, then remember those days in which the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Romans chapter 1 verse 18. Remember the glorious second coming of Christ, when all will rise, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Then everlasting shame will be the portion of sinners, and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 27. Let all these things make you sad, and not the command of our Lord. How shall I move you? What shall I say? Do you not desire the kingdom? Do you not fear hell? Where will healing be found for your soul? If these fearful visages do not move you, if these dazzling images do not compel you, then surely we are dealing with a heart of stone. Consider carefully, you mortal, the true nature of wealth. Why do you find gold so alluring? Gold is, after all, merely a kind of mineral, as is silver or pearl. Chrysolite, beryl, agate, hyacinth, amethyst, and jasper, they are all nothing but stones. These indeed comprise the rainbow hues of wealth. Some you hoard for yourself, concealing them and covering their luminous facets with darkness, while the more precious ones you carry with you, filled with conceit by the sight of their luster. Tell me, what benefit do you acquire by waving your hand about resplendent with gems? Should you not rather blush for shame, having the strange desire for pebbles like the cravings of pregnant women? Expectant mothers sometimes gnaw pebbles, and you have a similarly greedy appetite for brightly colored stones, sardonyx, jasper, and amethyst. What well-dressed person has ever been granted even one additional day of life? Has death ever spared anyone on account of wealth? Has sickness departed from anyone on account of possessions? How long shall gold be the oppression of souls, the hook of death, the lure of sin? How long shall wealth be the cause of war, for which purpose weapons are forged and sword blades whetted? Because of wealth, kinsfolk disregard the bond of nature, and sibling contemplates murder against sibling. Because of wealth, the desert teems with murderers, the sea with pirates, and the cities with extortionists. Who is the father of lies? Who is the author of forgery? Who gave birth to perjury? Is it not wealth? Is it not the pursuit of wealth? What ails you people? Who twisted the things that are yours into a plot against you? Material things exist to assist with life. Surely they were not given as a provision for wickedness. They constitute a ransom for the soul. Surely they were not provided as an occasion for your own destruction. But wealth is necessary for rearing children, someone will say. This is a specious excuse for greed. Although you speak as though children were your concern, you betray the inclinations of your own heart. Do not impute guilt to the guiltless. They have their own master who cares for their needs. They receive their being from God, and God will provide what they need to live. Was the command found in the gospel, If you wish to be perfect, sell your possessions and give the money to the poor, not written for the married? After seeking the blessing of children from the Lord, and being found worthy to become parents, did you at once add the following? Give me children, that I might disobey your commandments. Give me children, that I might not attain the kingdom of heaven. 
Who will vouch for the prudence of your children that they will use what is left to them for good ends? For many, wealth becomes an aid to immorality. Or do you not hear what is said in Ecclesiastes? There is a grievous ill that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owners to their hurt. Chapter 5, verse 13. And moreover, I will leave that for which I have toiled to those who come after me, and who knows whether they will be wise or foolish. Chapter 2, verse 18. Take care, then, lest after countless efforts to acquire riches, you end up providing others with resources to commit sins. In that case, you will find yourself doubly punished, both for acting unjustly in your own right and for furnishing others with the opportunity to do the same. Is not your own soul more intimately related to you than any child? Is not its presence the most familiar of all? Give to your soul first in the order of inheritance. Bestow upon it rich provisions for life, then divide your living amongst your children. Those children who do not receive an inheritance frequently do very well for themselves, but if you leave your own soul an orphan, who will take pity on it? The foregoing admonitions were given to parents, but what fine-sounding excuse for miserliness will those who have no children produce for themselves? I do not sell what I have, nor do I give to the poor, because I need what I have to live. Thus the Lord is not your teacher, nor does the gospel govern your life, but you are a lawgiver unto yourself. See what peril you fall into by thinking this way. If the Lord laid down these things as obligatory, but you write them off as unnecessary, it can only mean that you account yourself wiser than the lawgiver. Yet you say, I will enjoy these things during my life, but after my death I will leave my goods to the poor, making them beneficiaries of my will and granting them all my possessions. When you are no longer among your fellow human beings, then you will become a philanthropist. When I see you dead, then I will call you a lover of your brothers and sisters. You deserve great thanks for your magnanimity, since you became so generous and noble-hearted after you were laid in the grave and your body had dissolved in the earth. Tell me, however, from what period do you intend to seek your reward, the time of your life, or that which comes after your departure? When you were still alive, squandering your years in luxury and wasting them on frivolous pursuits, you never bothered to consider the plight of the needy. What exchange is possible now that you are dead? What reward of your labor is due to you? Show your works and seek your recompense. No one transacts business after the end of the festival, nor is anyone who arrives after the close of the games crowned, nor does anyone who comes after the war perform deeds of valor. It is thus apparent that no one can perform good works after the conclusion of this life. You promise your generosity with mere ink and letters. But who can foretell the time of your departure? Who can be sure of the manner of your end? How many are snatched away by sudden accidents without even having the opportunity to cry out? How many become delirious on account of fever? Why then do you wait for a time when it is likely that you will not even be the master of your own thoughts? Dark is the night, and grave the disease, and help nowhere to be found. Those who seek the inheritance are prepared to twist everything to their own advantage and nullify your wishes. Then, when you look around and realize that you are completely forsaken, then you will recognize your senselessness and lament your folly. Will you indeed give the order at that moment when your tongue goes slack in your mouth and your hand trembles uncontrollably, so that neither by spoken nor by written words can you communicate your intent? 
Even if everything has been clearly spelled out, even if every word has been explicitly declared, one inserted letter is enough to alter your intention completely. One forged seal, two or three false witnesses, and the entire inheritance falls into the hands of others. Why then do you deceive yourself? You wickedly dispose of your wealth now for selfish gratification, while making promises for the future concerning things of which you will no longer be master. As the word says, your intent is evil. While I am alive, I will revel in self-indulgence, but when I die, then I will begin practicing the commandments. Ezekiel chapter 11 verse 2. Abraham will say to you, during your lifetime you received your good things. Luke chapter 16 verse 25. You cannot enter by the narrow and difficult way because you have not shed the burden of wealth. You carried it until the end, instead of laying it aside as you were instructed. While you lived, you put yourself before the commandment, but after death and dissolution, you honor the commandment to spite your enemies. Let the Lord take what remains, in order that so-and-so may not receive it. What indeed shall we call this? Love for your neighbor, or revenge upon your enemies? Read your own will. Well, I wish I could go on living and enjoying my things, but... Thus, the gratitude is due to death, not to you. If you were immortal, you would have never remembered the commandments. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Galatians chapter 6, verse 7. Dead offerings are not accepted at the altar. You must rather present a living sacrifice. The one who makes an offering from remnants will not be accepted. Yet you offer to the benefactor whatever is left at the end of your life. If you would not dare to entertain dignitaries with the leftovers from your table, how dare you propitiate God with scraps? You rich behold the final end of avarice and break your passionate attachment to possessions. The more wealth-loving you are, the more you will take care that none of your goods is lost. Make everything truly your own. Transfer everything to the eternal realm. Leave none of your wealth behind for strangers. Perhaps the servants will not even dress you in burial finery at the last, but will desert the graveside, having already transferred their allegiance to the heirs. Perhaps they will even turn philosophical on you. It is not right, they will say, to adorn a dead body and to give a lavish funeral to someone who no longer feels anything. Would it not be better to dress the survivors in this elegant and beautiful clothing rather than allowing such precious garments to rot together with a corpse? What need is there of an officious headstone and a lavish burial, expenses that cannot be recovered? These funds should rather be used by those who remain for their own needs. These things they will say, at once avenging themselves upon you for your tyranny and ingratiating themselves with those who succeed to your fortune. In anticipation, therefore, prepare yourself for your own burial. Works of piety are an excellent burial garment. Make your departure dressed in the full regalia of your good deeds. Convert your wealth into a truly inseparable adornment. Keep everything with you when you go. Be persuaded to this by Christ, the good counselor who loves you. He became poor for us so that he might make us rich through his poverty and gave himself a ransom for all. Let us either be persuaded by him because he is wise and knows all things, or let us wait patiently for him, because he loves us. Or let us give to him in return, because he is our benefactor. In any case, let us do what we have been commanded, that we may become heirs of eternal life in Christ himself.
to whom is due glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Here ends the sermon. This episode is already getting quite long, and I'm going to mostly let Basil's words speak for themselves. However, I did want to make a couple of comments about what we have just heard. The first is that Basil's classical rhetorical training is showing up here, and showing up in a couple of different ways. You may have noticed that the argument at the core of Basil's sermon is pretty simple. You want to go to heaven. Sinning, and persisting in sin, will keep you out of heaven. Hoarding your resources when other people are starving is a sin, so stop doing that. Pretty simple. Didn't really take 30 minutes to say. But Basil understands that his homiletical task is as much about emotion as it is about logic, and you see him return to this argument over and over again, intensifying it, listing out examples of the various frivolities that people in his city were engaging in while their fellow citizens were quite literally starving to death. This is good classical oratory, and it's still good classical oratory today. Particularly, American stylists will tell people to keep to an economy of style, say what you mean, and then get off and move to something else. That's not the way classical rhetoric worked. You built, you repeated, you increased the intensity of your case until that final climactic moment of the speech, when you really had their attention. And of course, this is a very dramatic speech, and also a very brave one. There are some things that are universal in churches, and one of them is that it was no easier in the 4th century than it is in the 21st century to give a sermon that you know is likely to tick off your wealthiest donors. And of course, that's what Basil is doing. While he doesn't call out anyone by name, he does call out behaviors specific enough that people will know exactly who he is talking about. Perhaps some people showed up to church with jeweled rings on their fingers and heard Basil's condemnation of that. Perhaps some of those wealthy women that he excoriated glared at him as he described their day-to-day -day household management. This is an act of courage. Now, of course, Basil must have felt secure enough in his own position as a bishop to know that he could get away with preaching this way, and it seems he could. There was a greater tolerance in the ancient world for these kind of direct attacks on another person. It was part of the political rough-and-tumble. But that doesn't mean that it was easy. It also doesn't mean that Basil did this all the time. In fact, we have a number of his other sermons on the topic of wealth in which he often takes a more moderate approach to the matter. Why, then, is his language so stark, bracing, even at times bordering on vituperative, in this sermon? Well, a lot of it comes down to context. This sermon appears to have been given in the year following a terrible famine in Basil's location. The famine was so bad that it was causing all sorts of malnutrition and deaths by starvation within the city. In the face of this, many of the city's wealthy people were hunkering down, hoarding their resources, hoping that they and theirs would make it through this time of famine with their resources unscathed, their position in the city unchanged. When Basil talks about the scandal of poor people dying while the rich continue to dine sumptuously, he is not speaking in hypotheticals. This was quite literally happening in his city. Basil appears to have believed that the only way the poor of the city were going to make it through 
was if the rich opened up their coffers of generosity to help everyone make it through this time of a special crisis. And so he used the strongest language he could find to convince the moneyed rich of his time to part with their wealth in the name of inheriting the eternal wealth of God. And in the end, I think that's what makes this sermon such a great window into Basil's personality. Here he is, putting all of his considerable theological and rhetorical and plain old arm-twisting skills into the service of the gospel as he understands it. Basil spoke these words in a time of crisis that he was attempting to respond to, a crisis every bit as severe as the Christological crisis we've been following in our story. In our next main episode, we're going to take a look at how Basil puts some of those skills to use in the Trinitarian controversies. But first, we're going to take a look at another side of Basil's legacy. Sometimes, being a really great preacher makes your bad sermons even worse. And next time, we're going to take a look at one of those sermons, Basil's preaching on the Hexameron, or as I like to think of it, the best worst sermon in Christian history. One of the most amusing and instructive rest stops along this road to Nicaea. This is an Earth and Altar Podcast Network production. For more podcasts and weekly articles, visit us at earthandaltermag.com.